It has been astonishing what has taken place in this country since the senseless killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. We've gone through so many emotions. Disgust and disbelief sit at the top of the range of moods that have accompanied these latest incidents of the death of black people. People who pose no danger to society, to themselves, or to the police officers who killed them. We have been shaken, but not surprised by what we saw. But now the raw emotions and the exposed nerves are beginning to give way to finding a way out of this most recent reminder that we are sick. Sick not just from a new virus that is killing our way of life, but still suffocating from an old one that it is any wonder we have been able to breathe at all. Medicine and science can cure the first one, but is there a remedy for the other? Many rush to the judgment that an intensive voter turnout will clean up the mess we're in. But I don't think we can vote our way out of something we did not elect our way into. Don't get me wrong, I will vote because that is what a responsible citizen does to achieve a certain quality of life in his city, in his state, and in his country. But elections do not carry with them the healing power that this type of sickness requires. I think we talk about voting so much because it is a rather easy proxy for what comes after and in between elections. You see, what ails us goes much farther than letting our voices be heard in the voting booth. What makes us so sick is our inability to silence the psychotic voices that made a bastardized version of citizenship possible in the first place. If there is a solution to this problem, if there is a prescription for what ails us, and if there is an answer to this prayer for relief, it will depend entirely upon what it is we truly believe. And for that, we have to go back to the beginning. Back when we first said all men are created equal. Say those words out loud. And never mind the skin you're in, there is pride in knowing that you live in the nation that had the good sense to showcase that sentiment to a world more accustomed to oppression than the sameness of humanity. Now say them out loud again and weigh them against the painful past and the pitiful present, and depending upon the skin you're in, gauge just how long it takes to go from pride to doubt to anger to a sort of rehearsed hope that their very utterance might somehow make them true for yourself and for future generations. If we had only ever truly believed that all are created equal, then we would not be in the shape we're in right now. If we had believed all are created equal, then our body politic would not be ravaged with the disease of race prejudice and the bodies of too many black people would not be fair game for others suffering from the psychotic episodes it produces. If we had believed all are created equal, it would not have taken an incident that lasted 8 minutes and 46 seconds for us to see what has been staring us in the face for the last eight generations. Our Constitution starts with the three greatest words ever used to describe a society. We, the people. But because we did not truly believe all are created equal, that is why 216 words later the document dared to include the shameful phrase, All other persons. We, the people versus all other persons. 
You see, that is the longest running lawsuit in the history of humankind, and it is the one we have been fighting every second of every minute, every minute of every hour, every hour of every day, every day of every week, every week of every month, and every month of every one of the 244 years since we said we believed that all men are created equal. And this is where things get tricky, because right now this nation has to deal with both its belief and its unbelief. Because of the tension in our belief and our unbelief, that we can say one thing and continue to do another, that is why our past experiences are not the same. That is why our present expressions often differ, and that is why our postponed expectations are never a priority. We've already begun to hear a lot about race and laws and justice and the need for change. But what does change look like? It may have been a little easier to recognize change when the issue was where to sit on a bus which school you could attend, or whether you had the right to vote. But when the historical residue of injustice shows up in a myriad of physical, social, and economic indignities, how do you visualize change? Especially when you realize that there is a fundamental distinction between alteration and change. Whatever these specific measures will be, there are some very basic principles that cannot be ignored. Basic principles which absolutely have to be addressed to our structural, cultural, and individual conscience. First, we have to make certain we do not repeat the mistakes of the past. It is important that we learn from the tragic past that created the trauma of this present moment. If new laws are passed and new policies are promoted that alter the use of deadly force by law enforcement, let's make certain they do not get watered down and withered away with some new interpretation that was not part of its original intention. We did that once before, remember? We adopted this little thing called the 14th Amendment, guaranteeing equal protection of the laws way back in 1868. And because of the combined effect of disturbing judicial decisions and shameful political shenanigans, it took nearly 100 years before we got around to thinking that it actually meant what it said. We got to learn how not to make that kind of mistake again. Second, while we are learning not to repeat past mistakes, we have to let go. Let go of the assumptions that both foster and feature the notion that any race has to be superior over another. Let go of the apprehension that the permanent presence of one thing means the absolute absence of another. That has to be let go. If not, then there can be no repairs for this broken home, no remedy for the diagnosed but untreated disease, and no relief for this historical ache. Third, we better look. We better be on the lookout for the warning signs that others just cannot let go. We better be on the lookout for the sneaky and the subtle and the sophisticated ways that we can slip back into old habits. They say that numbers don't lie. 
Well, the moment we're in has been brought to us courtesy of the reality that in the not too distant future, the population of America will no longer be majority white. If you look carefully, and I know you see it, you will notice that there are still far too many who cling to the idea of white identity as though it was a membership card into an exclusive club. And their visible and vocal numbers are in direct correlation to the numbers that point to a color change in the ethnic picture of the nation. Their accusations, their actions, their affiliations, their assertions, and their anger are all rooted in the suspicion that the very basis of an identity which has remained dominant for so long, not to mention the expectations that come with that identity, is on its deathbed. And there are those who feel that this new America trying to be born is choking the life out of the America they were born into. That is why the conversations we have with ourselves and our children about how to behave are a burden to our being because there are others having conversations with themselves and their children that their behavior toward our being is their birthright. And if history is any judge, if the past is an indication of what is to come, then this will happen again. Somebody else might just be out for a jog or sleep in their own home or crying out that I can't breathe because the ones who cannot let go are willing to put up a very violent fight to stay alive. Be on the lookout to make certain that you are not part of the chorus of clowns that will concoct the cultural excuses that justify the actions of those who just cannot let go. And last, but certainly not least, while you are learning and learning to let go and on the lookout for the warning signs, love. If justice truly is the direction in which the moral arc of the universe bends, then fall in love with the arc bending work. Fall in love with the spirit of the law, not just its letter. Yes, it is true that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, but dare I say that the failure to establish justice somewhere guarantees that injustice will spring up anywhere. At its highest level, surely the just and the holy are one, and our ability to achieve one depends entirely upon our willingness to seek the other. Fall in love with that search. Make that your definition of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and see what happens. Nothing is fixed forever. The earth is always changing and generations do not cease to be born, and we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses they have. Those are words written by James Baldwin. Another writer said it this way. I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. Is this the moment we are in? One where we can see a new America because the old one is passing away. Is this the beginning of our being the type of witnesses who will take a stand for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Is this the arc of hope that we can all enter, two by two, on our way to where we all get to be? 
finally, maybe, just maybe, we the people. I wonder, but I won't hold my breath. <laughs>